Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 28, 2016, and this is episode 1880 of the Survival Podcast. Of course, it's a Wednesday as well. Wednesday means interview day. Today I have a long-term listener to the Survival Podcast. been listening since the 800s. And of course, today we're at 1800, so over a thousand episodes. His name is Bob Brown. He is an engineer by trade that took kind of a wonky path to get there. He'll tell us about all of that more today, but he's involved with uh, writing code for computers now, and um, he's the only coder in his company. And um, it's not because they don't do a lot of code writing. It's because <clears throat> most of the code actually gets produced by machines. And he's going to talk to us about um, the emerging reality in automation today, along with some other things, including his thoughts on things like energy usage, peak oil, etc. And uh, we'll actually have some disagreement on some things, which I think is awesome. I love when I have to, because that way we can both present our sides, and I think we get a much more clear picture of what's really going on when you have multiple views into the same thing. Anyway, before uh, we get him on, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Next up, uh, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1880, and of course that means that's because the episode's 1880. Alex Shrugged has two for us today, The Greatest Show on Earth, and Flex Electricity is Discovered. And Notable Births, who was born this year? How about Douglas MacArthur, U.S. Army General who will fight in the Philippines in World War II, occupy Japan, invade Korea until President Truman fires him for insubordination. Helen Keller, socialist, born deaf and blind. She will overcome her handicaps with the help of Ann Sullivan. B.C. Forbes, financial journalist. He will found Forbes magazine in 1917. Tom Mix, film star. He will define the Western cowboy in film. And W.C. Fields, comedian and professional cynic. Don't say you can't give up drinking. It's easy. I've done it a thousand times. And I never vote for anyone. I always vote against. <laughs> anyway, um, I just want to point out, One of the names here that's probably the least familiar to most people. I mean, I think most people know who MacArthur is. I've heard of Helen Keller, Forbes, right, uh, and W.C. Fields. But it's Tom Mix. Tom Mix was in those those movies, you know, when they were black and white movies and, and what have you. Um, one of the things that Tom Mix is noted for in history is that while attending Wyatt Earp's funeral, he openly wept. That's uh, This kind of puts everything in perspective. What we're beginning to do now in history, even though they're all the way back in 1880, we're beginning to move into a timeline where the people we hear about are far more familiar to us. And that's going to increase as we move forward, kind of like technology is going to keep increasing. Anyway, 
When I, I when I read this, I actually read Flex Electricity is discovered first because it just sounded more interesting to me, and I was gonna read that one until I saw Alex's take, and he reveals quite a bit about himself in this one, and I think after all the work he's done, it might be better to get to know Alex a little bit more, and so I'm going to read that one. P.T. Barnum is a former state congressman and past mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, so you know you can trust him. His various hoaxes are explained away as publicity stunts to attract the public to his museum. After all, who could possibly believe that a monkey from Fiji was actually born with the tail of a fish, or that General Tom Thumb was really that tall? He was actually a four-year-old dwarf from Bridgeport who smoked too much. Despite these dubious publicity stunts, many of the museum exhibits were real. He also promoted the Swedish singer Jenny Lind, whose crystal clear voice attracted tens of thousands. He made half a million on that deal. She made 350000 which is like $94 million in 2015 dollars. He didn't get into the circus business until he was 60 years old, and here we are today. He is, a, he is in competition with Cooper and Bailey Circuses. They both want to buy a baby elephant named Columbia, the first elephant born in the United States. Barnum and Bailey meet in Philadelphia and decide to merge their circuses instead. By the next by next year, they will buy Jumbo the Elephant and introduce three rings to the circus. The circus will be called Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth. It will be bought out by Ringling Brothers in 1907. Elephants will get the boot in 2016 after the circus wins a lawsuit against animal rights activists but decides that compliance with local regulations regarding the use of elephants in entertainment is just isn't worth the trouble anymore. My take by Alex Shrugged. I was a professional clown, but I'll talk about that in a moment. First, the movie The Greatest Show on Earth, 1952, starring Charlton Heston and freaking Emily Kelly, Emmett Kelly, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It was good, but not that good. The contending film High Noon had a communist in it, and we can't have the All-American Academy Awards going to a red. Ah, uh, those were the days. That The Las Vegas delusionist Penn Gillette graduated from Barnum and Bailey Clown School, but Penn didn't become a clown. He met this guy named Teller, and they talked. Well, Penn talked, and Teller listened. That's the gag. Teller can't talk. I became a clown in the 1980s. I was a hook, an earthworks inspector, a magazine editor, a writer, a salesman, an improvisational comedian, a BIOS programmer for Dell Computers, and clowning was in the middle somewhere. Let me read that to you again. This guy that's been doing all this work for you guys? I was a cook, an earthworks inspector, a magazine editor, a writer, a salesman, an improvisational comedian, a BIOS programmer for Dell, and clowning was in the middle somewhere. Get the feeling this guy's done a lot? I think so. Why a clown? I needed a way to pay back the community. I was a very bad boy when I was younger. I apologize for my misdeeds, but there were people I could never find. How was I to repay them? I got training as a real clown. People act differently when you're a real clown. They walk into traffic for you. I've seen it. Some children, even adults, will be frightened. It's your responsibility to help them through that. One day a man tried to hit me. He was so frightened, I turned away. I was willing to let him hit me because I'm the clown. I don't hurt, I only help. Clowning's not enough to make up everything in my past, but I, I know that. But that doesn't excuse me from trying. I tell you this not to make myself look good, but to remind everyone that redemption is possible. In my case, it took a miracle, and it took a few people who went out of the way to help me. I think a lot of people feel that their past isn't quite what they'd want it to be. And I, I think that one of the reasons we study history and we enjoy history, if we actually study real history instead of just trying to memorize dates and stuff like they teach you in school, is because history is full of stories of f people who fall but redeem themselves and come back. 
if you actually read past the headlines, because the headlines are always about somebody that really sucked or somebody that was really good. They never really talk about the people that came out good, how what they had to go through to get there. And I think that good men become better men when they're willing to take a look at their past. So I, I think that's a, a, good, a good thing to think about today. Now on the clowns, the clowns can only do good, not evil, uh, or they don't hurt, they only help. I think that's a great rule for clowns. Unfortunately, in the world today, we also have these people we call ass clowns, not real clowns, like uh, the people running for government uh, in the ass clown circus of 2016. Hold on to that thought, because I have a perfect song for you at the end of today's show. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today. Let's talk about all that's going on with automation and uh, artificial intelligence with uh, Bob Brown, engineer by trade, a really great guy, again, a long-term listener of the show. And uh, with that, hey, Bob, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. I've uh, been a long-time listener. A pleasure to be on the show. Glad to have you on, man. So uh, we're going to talk about automation today. And as you know, I, I've been uh, banging that drum really heavy for about two years now and really heavy for like the last six months because so much of it's actually coming to fruition. And uh, with your background, and all, I'd like to get your take on it. But before we get into that, can you kind of talk about what that background is? Kind of like, you know, when you when you got out of high school, would you how'd you figure out you wanted to go into engineering and, and what led you down that path? Okay. Uh it's actually a long path now because I'm getting up there in age. But uh started out, you know, as a kid, I was always interested in learning. And uh, you know, I went through interests in different things, but probably late in elementary school really got interested in electronics. Now back then this was the sixties. I built a lot of stuff with vacuum tubes, believe it or not. Okay, so uh, really was interested in that, uh, drifted away from that a little bit through high school, you know, not sure what to do like a lot of kids at, a, at high school. You know, what are you, you know, going on to college? I was going to go on to college. I wasn't a great student, but pretty good. Uh, you know, what could I major in? Well, at the time... I lived on Long Island. Grumman Aerospace was the biggest employer on Long Island. They were actually laying off engineers because the space program was just slowing down, downsizing. We'd put a man on the moon and so forth. So I didn't think of engineering. I actually majored as, went and uh, was a chemistry major. So got a bachelor's in chemistry after four years and went into, uh, as you put it, government school and taught chemistry uh, and some general science for a couple of years. Uh, left that. Went back to school for a short time and picked up some more chemistry courses and also happened to take a computer science course uh, in a year back. Uh, I had a, a technically a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry, so I went and took the additional courses that would be required to have a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, figuring that will make it better for me to get hired in the chemistry field since teaching at that time was really, really crowded. Uh, so, got a job at this small company working as a, a chemist and a little bit of in their quality control department. Uh, caught a break, to, you know, small companies, things can happen. Talked to the engineering people a lot. Got, um, they had just started with some old Radio Shack computers in the uh, chemistry lab that we used to have. Uh, and, and this is a kind of a funny story, but I've, started fooling around with the computer a little bit, produced some games on the computer, and we would fool around with them in between doing tests and so forth. And then uh, one day, one of the research scientists who was a college professor came over, saw the game, 
She started playing it. Well, the president of the company walks in, sees her playing the game, and uh, he says, hey, that's a good game. Let me play. And, and it ended up the two of them spent the afternoon with a, a yellow pad keeping score against each other, playing the game the whole time. So then a few months after that, uh, they were looking. They said, we, we need somebody else to help with programming, help with some electronics development. Uh, he knew about the president of the company, knew about my interest in programming and some skill, and then uh, got a break there. So uh, started working as an engineer. Uh, one of the things, you know, we, we talk about education on your show a lot. And, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need a degree in engineering to get an engineering job. And maybe that's something you want to go, we'd want to talk about a little further. But from that time, got my foot in the door and just continued plugging away at it. Now it's been 30 plus years as an engineer. Uh, you know, I enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge. Uh, company I work for now, actually, we, we have a very diverse group of people, so I'm working uh, using my science background and my science interests, uh, working with a lot of mechanical engineers, electrical people, and I, I do uh, mostly programming, but a lot of hands-on stuff, and we also, uh, you know, my teaching background comes in, we do a lot of customer calls, so we uh, are talking to the customer frequently, even as engineers, you know, in, in a small group. You get a lot of opportunity to do a lot of different things. So, so that's kind of a short version of how I got where I got. Very cool, man. Um, now, kind of the main topic we have on the deck today is to talk about automation. And you've been listening to the show for quite a while, and I've been saying, you know, we're, we're probably going to see major disruptions, job losses due to automation. Do you, do you think that's the case? And if you do, how do you think some of that might occur? Uh well, I think it's a continuation of things we've already seen. You know, if you think about it, how much has automation already taken away from jobs that, you know, when I was a kid, there are a lot of those jobs have disappeared, you know, and they've been replaced by automation. On my own job, even just, uh, you know, this maybe is, is a little technical, but, you know, you write code in something called a and you use something called the compiler, and it takes basically English type of word structure and converts it into a, a low-level language that the uh, microprocessor understands. Uh, it used to be years ago that uh, I could take uh, the micro, the compiler-produced code, and you would go in and you say, "Hey, I need to speed up this section of code," and you could go in and you could look at the code it produced, and you could see. Uh, in 10 lines of code, you could probably eliminate five of them and condense them, shorten them, improve them quite a bit. Now, nowadays, if you try to do the same thing, you find the compiler can produce code that's far beyond uh, your understanding, at least at a quick glance. So where it would have taken many people to do the job I'm doing and, you know, some other people to optimize and speed up the code, it's being done automatically because – the computer doesn't get bored, it doesn't get distracted, it doesn't get tedious, it just can plow through these things and it can look at a, a depth that uh, a human finds really hard to, to focus on. So I think it's just a continuation of things that are happening. Uh, I don't think anything that's going to stop it is because technology can't keep advancing. I think it, it, what might stop is coming from... Uh, 
you know, basically any other angles. I think the economy, as, as uh, you've been talking about, that's going to have an effect. I also think energy, uh, and I put a little more stock in this, I think, than you do, and maybe that's an area where we differ and would be interesting to discuss, and, uh, you know, the environmental impacts. But technology-wise, a uh, ton of things to do. When you know, I read the journals, and, uh, you know, here's an article, uh, and these aren't available to the public. You know, I, I'm a, a member of the IEEE, which is an engineering association in their computer uh, association. So, you know, an article that appeared recently was automation and future unemployment. It was basically about the topics you've been talking about. Uh, another one is, can you know, can we trust robots? They're going to be driving us soon, operating on us and deciding who lives and who dies on the battlefield, you know, and they have a whole section about that. So, you know, in the technical press, they're saying these things. Uh, I think you've picked on it. And I think, yes, automation is going to have continue to have a huge impact. And probably I think you're right. It will it will keep accelerating and gradually can eliminate a lot of jobs or, or drastically change a lot of jobs, reduce the number of people required, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think that, like, one of the things that people don't get is the the way it ties into the overriding economy. So if jobs were replaced at, let's say, 10%, well, mm-hmm. that's 10% of people not working. Those people don't have an income now. They're not spending money. That would create other layoffs, other disruptions in the employment areas because, well, there's less spending. So other companies that have to lay people off, that then it's like a it's like a, a, a cancer eating itself. And then as that begins to occur, it becomes more and more difficult to compete. So what do the companies then have to do? They have to lean out even further through greater automation and it just keeps kind of cycling on top of itself. And that's kind of where I see things headed. Yeah, it definitely can happen that way. You need to get that kind of deflationary spiral where things kind of are caving in on themselves. And as you point out all the time, you know, with a debt-based money system, that's that's a real problem. Uh, and there's nobody, you know, there's no overseer of this happening. Each company acts independently. You know, we, we live in a climate where CEOs of companies will uh, – Borrow money, have the company borrow money, I should say, to give themselves a dividend. Uh, they're going to do what they think is in their best interest, and they're going to try to beat their competitors to it. So, yeah, it's a very difficult crunch we're seeing. And, and uh, I think your message about resiliency and so forth is going to be really important for people. How has this started to impact you at your job on a personal level? Have you seen any impact of it? Well, uh, like I talked about with the compilers, you know, we can do so much more. I, I'm the only programmer at, in my group, the only person who programs. I can do so much more with the modern tools than I could before. So, you know, I'm replacing two or three people. Uh, we have one guy who's basically the electrical engineer, and I, I know enough about electronics to uh, really work closely with him, and we work closely with each other. But with the modern uh, tools for, for instance, laying out a printed circuit board. Now, I remember the days when that was done at a drafting table. So you would hand something to a draftsman. He would lay it out on a drafting table. 
And then we would go through and we'd, we'd print out a whole bunch of papers, stack them on top of each other, push pins through the paper to see where a trace goes one way and trace it back the other way. And it took weeks and weeks to, to turn out a simple PC board. Now it's a matter of a few days. So we have one electrical engineer. He's churning out an enormous volume of work, you know, re- basically replacing maybe three, four people in the department and the same with software. I'm replacing three or four people. So it, it's dramatically scaled down with, with the computing power we have available and the tools that are developed. Uh, it, it, it really is reducing the size of an engineering department. Yeah, I, and I, I, that's kind of what I see happening everywhere where it doesn't – like automation didn't eliminate your job. It just eliminated everybody else that was doing your job at your location or I don't know the growth of your company. So perhaps you've grown as a company and you would have had to hire additional manpower uh, and you didn't. Therefore, those are jobs that either were eliminated or not created as other jobs atrophy off. And I just see that's that kind of like self-replicating through other industries. So you will still have a lawyer, but you'll have less of them because computers can do the jobs of many lawyers. And in fact, when you think about like a successful law practice, right? So if it's successful, and what I mean by that is not one guy that, that writes wills and what have you, but a, a, a legitimate practice with, let's say, three or four attorneys in it, that that firm does not employ those three or four attorneys, it employs those three or four attorneys. It employs paralegals and it employs researchers and all these other positions that can then be automated. And then you're down to maybe you need one attorney to run uh, what normally would be a, a considered a sizable practice, one or two attorneys, no staff, and all of this automation. And then that just keeps, again, like like a snake eating its tail, I guess is maybe better than cancer eating itself, um, and, and just continues to, to, to run ripples down through society. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, if you if you just think back, okay, we used to have telephone operators. Yeah, <laughs> they, they're gone. Yeah, uh, you, you can think back. So many different positions have been eliminated. I mean, the need for secretaries, people to take stenography. I mean, so much of that stuff ha- has disappeared over time. Now we've kind of replaced it in other ways, uh, but. I mean, yeah, so what do you say to somebody that gives you the objection I hear all the time? Well, it's the same old, same old, yes. Look at all the jobs that were eliminated, but there are all these new jobs, and then that'll just happen again. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not that optimistic about that at this point. No, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic about that, and, and for two reasons. Uh, one, in this country, a lot of the jobs have been created, and, and, and this is, I guess, a kind of a key point. Economically, I read about something in, believe it of all, not of all places in electrical engineering times, but a good, uh, way to, to look at some things economically. And the gist of this article was there are certain professions that take money and recirculate it, and there are certain professions that make money. And of course, this being an engineering journal, their idea was that, uh, we send more people to college to become engineers, our economy will be better than if they become lawyers. And the reason is, they said, an engineer is actually a wealth-creating occupation. You're developing products and so forth that draw money to wherever that company is. Uh, 
a lawyer just simply takes money that is in society and skims off the top. And if you think about uh, companies that are trying to develop an economy like India, well, they don't put up a bunch of law offices, but they try to go high tech and they uh, try to get us to outsource our programming to them and things like that. So there's there's a lot of truth to that. So you have rent-taking activities and a lot of things that have gone on in this country, growth of employment and so forth, are rent-taking activities. They exist only because there's an existing pool of money. Uh, those activities don't work in an economy without something generating wealth. Yeah, I, and and what's going to do that now, right? I, I, I and I, I don't really have an answer for that. Uh, I would like to kind of back up a little bit. You said something kind of at a passing there about energy and us not agreeing on that. I'm not sure what you meant by that. So can you explain that? Okay. Yeah. Um, I know. You know. I, I, I actually wrote a short blog piece about your conversation with John Pugliano when you were talking about automation. Yeah. Advances. And one of the things that, you know, we talk about enormous gains in technology. And uh, I think this is something I've heard Chris Martinson saying when he was giving a talk and he was talking about energy problems and, you know, peak oil and things like that. And he said, you know, people in the audience were waving their iPhones. And there's a big difference between our ability to improve technology and most of this improvement is based upon semiconductor technology the old Moore's, Moore's law uh, compared to our ability to use technology to generate energy you know which really doesn't exist and it, in fact as we're going along using a lot of this technology we're replacing people with technology that is draining energy uh, yeah, I work in the business actually. Our, the company I work for, we produce, uh, cooling modules for telephone routers and computer servers. You know, so these huge modules. Well, they draw a tremendous amount of power to cool a router or a server. And these router and servers are, you know, refrigerator size, uh, mod units that there's a whole bank of them in these rooms that are all air conditioned. So there, you don't realize that, you know, your iPhone or your, your Android phone doesn't draw a lot of power on its own, but the resources that, that keep it going and the network that it depends on are drawing a lot of energy. And, uh, I think that's gonna, that's an issue in addition to the economics that I think we'll be dealing with in the coming years is, that we can't just keep expanding energy use because that's a finite resource, you know, finite planet. So that's, uh, that's, I, I don't I, know that we disagree, disagree on that. I think that where I disagree is, you know, on the whole peak oil, uh, and peak energy, cause it's not just oil, it's energy. There's, there's, there's nothing that can do what oil does from a, an energy density standpoint, but natural gas is pretty damn good and coal's not that bad either. I just think we have a lot more time in that that piece then then and I respect Chris's work very much but more time than he seems to indicate I think there's a little bit of uh accelerated antagonism there that, that benefits his marketing I guess is the way I would put it um it's not that the problem's not real 
It's that I don't know how imminent the problem is. There's there's a lot of stuff still in the ground. But I do get what you're saying about people not understanding, well, what are the what are the energy requirements to have an iPhone that does all this wonderful stuff, you know, on a few watts of power. It, it, it doesn't do it by itself. It's part of a of a of a giant interconnected cloud of different devices that allow that to happen and all of that stuff takes a lot of energy to run. Yeah. I, I, I still I probably side more towards Chris's side on the peak oil. Uh you know, just from my understanding and you know my experience and my background. So yeah, I got my driver's license in nineteen seventy three. So I remember the uh, oil problems in 74, and I believe it was 79, where, you know, long gas lines and so forth. And, and each time, the price of gas doubled, you know. So the U.S. had kind of peaked on oil production. Now, we've come close again to that peak with fracking, I think, last year. Uh, but uh, my analogy for, for the whole peak oil thing, and, and I think why people don't take it too seriously, let's say, you know, you have a homesteader. And he says, I'm going to heat my home on these trees. And he's got this old growth forest with a 100 trees on, on nice level ground behind it. And maybe another a hillside there with another 20 trees on it. So uh, he says he's going to do that. First year, he tops down 10 trees, heats his house. He's, you know, walking around a T-shirt all winter. He's nice and toasty. And so forth. He's happy with it. And he looks out at the forest and says, look at this big forest I have. I got no problems. You know, I still have a lot of trees left. Uh, somebody else looks at that and says, wait, at the rate you're using it, you got to run out of trees to chop down. And this, I think, was kind of the notification we got back in the 70s. You know, you had the limits to growth come out, uh, you know, Bill Mellison with Permaculture One back in the 70s. There was kind of a recognition in this country that, hey, there, there are limits here and there's problem with our energy future. Somehow in 1980 or so, once the uh, oil situation and the gasoline line stopped, it just seemed to be forgotten about. So I think it has happened. We, we've kind of distorted things with fracking. And I think a lot of the fracking, as best as I can tell, not too many serious oil companies are involved in fracking. I don't know of Exxon having any rigs doing fracking. I've heard Chevron has a couple. Uh, but the real big oil companies, who are serious oil companies, are not involved in fracking. It's all these small companies, and they've taken advantage of real low interest rates. They're living on borrowed money. They can pay back the uh, each coupon payment on the debt they owe, but they can never really pay back what they owe. And I think probably in a couple of years we'll we'll swing back from this surplus of oil and oil being relatively cheap to being relatively expensive. And I I, I don't agree with that, but I guess what I would say on that is like so what you're describing there is the way the oil companies have always worked. The oil companies have never, whether it was fracking, whether it was deep water, the oil companies never do the exploration. They, they, they have smaller companies that do that, and, and then they either buy up the company once the, the structure's developed, or they just keep continuously buying from them. In fact, many times those small companies are actually owned by the same people that own the big companies, and they do that for exactly that reason. Let's say they can't pay the debt. 
Well, then they go bankrupt. Then they buy their own asset up in the bankruptcy, and then then they go on with life. So I, that's a monetary issue, but I don't know that that – it certainly doesn't make the flow a very continuous guaranteed thing, but I don't think it's much different than the way all these big – I mean, pharmaceutical companies do the same thing, don't they? You know, they have the, the little companies do all of the risky research, and then once they get it to where they want it, they buy out the whole the whole shamil. Yeah, I would have thought, though, at this point, with the price of oil crashing, that it would have been the time for uh, those companies to move in and buy it up if they thought it really had a good future. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I've listened to different people on that. Yeah. And, uh, one of the guys I listened to, and if, if I can mention another podcast, sure. it's, it's fairly new, uh, fellow Eric Townsend. And he'd actually be a good guest to have on if he if he was interested. Maybe I'll suggest it. But uh, this guy was a software entrepreneur and cashed out uh, with millions on the uh, you know the, just before the dot com bubble. So he kind of floated around. He actually runs a hedge fund now, and he started a podcast this year called Macro Voices. And he he's been really into the peak oil. And, and discussing it. He, he's looking actually for prices to crash at the moment now. Uh, he's been kind of surprised that they've held up as well as they have. But he's expecting following the crash, you know, we're going to get a lot of volatility and it will probably swing really steeply up uh, and possibly put a lot of these companies out of business. And until prices get much higher, fracking doesn't really pay off. Uh, so, you know, I, I the perspective I've got, I kind of tend to believe that, uh, you know, we're walking along our merry way and we're saying, look, we're, we're on solid ground, but there's a cliff just ahead. <laughs> and just because we're on solid ground now, like that guy with the uh, homestead, he, yeah, you got plenty of trees. You see a, a thick forest there. But, you know, if you step back and look at it and say, hey, you know, just because we're burning through reserves in the ground faster and, and, and increasing our rate doesn't make the problem go away. It actually makes us come to a, an end game faster. So it, it kind of it, it concerns me, uh, you know, looking forward and, you know, looking to uh, my kids, you know, what kind of life they're going to have. I don't think in my lifetime, in you know, the next 20 years, hopefully 20 plus years, that, you know, we're going to run out of oil at all. And I don't think we'll ever totally run out of oil. Uh, but I think it's going to be more and more scarce. Uh, also, I can comment a little bit on natural gas uh, as a car, an automobile fuel and so forth. So my wife is Swiss, so I have in-laws actually in Switzerland. And in, back in 2010, we were over there, and we borrowed uh, my brother-in-law's car, and it was a dual-fuel car. It ran both on gasoline and natural gas, but we were you, using the natural gas part of it. And they have filling stations all over Switzerland where you can fill up on natural gas. Uh, the one interesting thing is that the car always started, cold started, using the gasoline because the energy density of the gasoline was needed to – cold start and you didn't get quite the same performance on the natural gas just not as much energy i was thinking we'd start to see that here because we do have a lot of natural gas uh available but it seems like we have such an inertia in this country and of course the country is much bigger than switzerland that 
that kind of changeover is is going to be sl- painfully slow to happen. Uh, I don't know I that it thought- will. I I think that it's more likely with the evolution in vehicles that run on electronics that will be burning natural gas to make electricity that will run cars. I think that's long term the 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 more likely place that we're going when you see the work that. that that Tesla's doing, and I, I think when I look at, at Elon Musk and Tesla, the reason I believe that they're they're on the right path is because of how difficult the automotive industry is making it for them to actually sell their cars, right? So the, the, the way the dealer networks are fighting back against it, like if, if they weren't on the right path, they wouldn't even worry about them. They just say it's some it's some quack, you know, that made a bunch of money on the internet that now thinks he's going to make electric cars. Let him go ahead, and then they're really doing everything they can to prevent Tesla from entering markets state by state. And I, I think that's where we're headed, autonomous electric vehicles. And then it doesn't matter how you produce the power. It just matters that you produce the power. But I, I think we'll, we'll go on from here because I think we, we actually do agree more than we disagree. I think the only thing we disagree about is the how long does it take till we get to where it's a problem? How much time do we have to solve it? That type of thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot closer. Uh, a good line from a Macro Voices podcast, uh, and it, they actually were talking about Tesla at the time, and you know, saying you know, you, you know, getting all the lithium for lithium ion batteries is is a problem, and also uh, in my my work, I actually drive motors, and the motors to to be top efficiency you'd actually have to have a fair amount of rare earth elements in the magnet especially neodymium and those aren't that prevalent and uh you know right now uh most of the neodymiums being produced by china uh there's only a handful of uh companies actually outside of china involved in rare earth element mining and so forth so so there, there are limitations there and the fact that tesla is going slow you know they're not stressing any of these resources so a, a little bit of caution there that you know they can't just turn on the spigot and suddenly produce uh you know up their production uh and replace most of the cars out in the road now uh th- there's going to be a lot of pains to doing that and uh you know, things get a lot tighter when you when then when you're just trying to you know you're just barely squeaking out a handful of cars, which they you know in terms of the automotives uh, automobiles produced each year, it's 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 minuscule. I think on that one of the things that all of these manufacturers are going to have to do with all of the the rare earths is they're going to have to start designing these materials to be reusable, and and they're not doing a good job of that right now. When when your lithium ion battery wears out, what do you do? You dispose of it. Uh, they're going to have to start, especially with some of the things like the vehicles and all, they're going to have to be designing these. So when the vehicle reaches its end of life cycle, a lot of this stuff that's difficult to get has to be recoverable. And uh, that's probably harder than it sounds to do, but that's going to be necessary if it's going to be sustainable. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, and, and that always, it, it always comes down to the economics part of it. So the price of those materials has to be, more expensive than recycled materials and you know it depends on the cost of recycling obviously but economics definitely drives that decision yeah it's kind of like the you're back to your homesteader analogy the guy needs to start coppicing and he doesn't know it right yes yeah yet you could get more wood from the tree by taking that last five feet down but if you don't the tree will grow back faster than you can grow a new tree and and that that mentality has to get into and it's it's difficult because of 
basically laws that push fiduciary responsibility. But um, can you uh, can you talk a little bit about um, what a rent taker is in economics? Because you have that on your notes here. Yeah, so, so touched on a little bit before, but basically uh, a lot of the jobs that have come along in the, in the, in the United States since the 70s, because we went from being an export power in – you know, through the 50s and the 60s, the 70s, we kind of hit a, a plateau where we were importing a lot, importing more oil. Uh, Japan was really becoming a manufacturing powerhouse. So all of a sudden, Japanese cars started to really become common and so forth. And we kind of flatlined in the 70s. And then by the 80s, we, we were a net importer. Uh, sometimes, you know, it feels like we were uh, always an importer. You, you, I've Forget that, you know, back in my youth, we were actually an exporting powerhouse. But so we had originally a wealth creation economy and we had things that we could ship all over the world that were in demand by everybody in the world. And uh, we've gone to a more rent taking economy. And that's uh, people who depend on people having money for their job. So an entertainer, uh, to some extent, is a rent taker. Uh, a lawyer, a doctor, uh, a lot of fields, an accountant, they're all kind of taking money that exists, but they don't actually create money on their own. They don't create wealth on their own. Uh, interesting comment from back uh, years ago, worked with a Chinese fellow, and one day in the, in the he had come over from Shanghai, so a bunch of us in the office are talking, and uh, he mentions that his mom was a doctor back in China. And everybody said, oh, so you were well off. He said, no, we were the same as everybody else. You know, if nobody has money, there's no money to go to the doctor. China's a poor country. Doctors were poor just like everybody else. Uh, so a lot of the professions in this country that make money are basically rent taking that the fact that hey we're a well-off company a country and so we can partake of that wealth uh but without the wealth creation engine those jobs don't exist and you know you mentioned uh in the future as things change you know you think you can still do podcasting but how lucrative will it be will exactly it, your revenue will be the same as it is now if i'm I'm happy to be an MSB member, but hey, if I'm out of job for two years, maybe not. <laughs> no, that makes part. No, that's absolutely the case. Or, or even you know, selling items through Amazon. If you don't have the money, you can't buy the stuff. Exactly. And, and that's that's exactly the, the the position that that everybody's in. I, I think that there are there are professions that are more like that, but I think every profession's like that in the end. Because even if you're uh, a guy that can go out in the, the woods and, and, and carve beautiful uh, knives out of, uh, you know, basically, I uh, can't think of the word right now I'm looking for, but the glass, uh, it's a rock that's glass. Um, say flint because that's, that's wrong. But so you still need somebody to buy it. Like I don't oh, know yes. anybody that does anything that if other people don't have money, they're, they're safe, right? I mean like every single – but I, I get what you're saying. Rent taking is, is when it's directly proportional that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the one job uh, or the one area that isn't is basically food production. And if you think about, you know, when the country started, the founding fathers, a lot of them were big landowners. You know, so so making stuff that comes from the earth actually is 
one area that, you know, there's always demand for. Unfortunately, now in a lot of it, it's been commoditized and, you know, the price has been squeezed and so forth. But, uh, you know, producing good quality local food, I think that's, that's an area you want to move into. I'd agree. You're still in the same position. I, I, my grandfather used to say when he was a kid during the, the, the Great Depression, he'd go downtown and there'd be, you know, a box, a, a big giant thing of apples for, for 10 cents. And all I could say is, damn, that's cheap. Didn't mm-hmm. buy it. <laughs> right? You know, damn, that's cheap. I guess I'm going home hungry, you know? Because if you ain't got a dime, it doesn't matter that it's only a dime. Yeah. And uh, that that would be a case where, yeah, if you don't have the dime, do you, what what else do you have of value? And that is true. There's always something of value, some sort of a barter. And if nothing else, if you're producing food, you eat. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's that's what I kind of follow. I've always thought. If you can monetize it, great. But in the end, if you're producing food, you you get to eat, and that's uh, it's kind of important. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Cool. Um, so. What might slow down the adoption of automation? Uh, I think the capabilities are far beyond where we're actually gone right now. I think we have everything we need to go further, but, you know, it, it, it hasn't – I don't know what I'm trying to say. It, uh, it, I, I think there are other things holding us back, and there will continue to be that. What, what do you say on that? Oh, yeah, it's definitely other things holding us back. I mean, some of it is just time for development and proving things out. Uh, you never know exactly when something's going to take hold. Uh, you know, uh, I would say self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, those things, the capabilities there, it just has to prove out over time, uh, that it will work. Uh, so I, I don't think that holds, you know, I think it's more taking time, and all of a sudden things will just pop up. They'll happen. And, you know, it will seem like it happened overnight, but actually it's been happening for a long time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, um, go ahead. Oh, yeah, a little bit. You know, um, back in the 80s, I worked for a company called uh, Robotic Vision Systems. And it's kind of funny. I, I, you know, I got it, started the job and, uh, you know, we got a stock option. Well, back then everybody looked at this was futuristic. This is going to happen any day now. Uh, it's going to be really big, big, big. So I got a stock option, you know, at the price when I came into the company, you know, the price just kept going down and down and down <laughs> as the time <laughs> I stayed there. But, uh, back then, you know, we had a 3D robotic vision system. So you could actually, the idea of the project I was working on, which was for the Navy, was you were able to scan things and reverse engineer them. So they could take stuff they didn't have drawings for and basically recreate the drawings from a scanned part. Really, really cool uh, technology. Uh, you know, anytime they took somebody through the company, they took over to the project. I was I was kind of in charge of it technically and, uh, you know, worked on it. But back then, some of the things we worked on peripheral technologies and, and saw and learned about was uh, something called stereolithography. Now, that was actually 3D printing. Hmm. They were doing 3D printing back in the 80s. A uh, company I work for now, uh, I started there 10 years ago. They And at, back then it was old, but they had uh, what they called an SLS machine, which is another type of 3D printing. 
uh, centered laser, selective laser centering. So these things have been around now, but it's only recently that all of a sudden it's popped up and uh, it's become really, really popular. But companies have been using those technologies for a long time for prototypes. So demonstrations of concepts and so forth. Now, in our case, they, they don't scale up to what we need in the end because there's there's limited temperature range the materials can be used in and so forth. But, you know, back in the 80s, you know, if you would have bet on it, then nothing would have happened. You would have lost your money. But now all of a sudden, boom, that, that stuff has, has just taken off and it's constantly being talked about. So things – Sometimes take a, a little longer than you might think, and then all of a sudden they seem to happen overnight. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's exactly what we're seeing. Is uh, this stuff gets talked about, talked about forever, where people be, become apathetic toward it, and then next thing you know, well, how did all this get here? You know, that's that's where it seems like things are headed to me anyway. Um, you've mentioned that Switzerland has impressed you with the level of technology you see there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I've always, when we've gone over there, and I think the first time I went over there was 1990 or 89, uh, one of the novel things I saw was pay at the pump to get gasoline. So my mother-in-law drove, you know, drove us over, and it's, there's no, no people around at all, the place she was getting gas, and, and was paying at the pump. It took us another five years to have that here. So I, I've always think, thought they were ahead a bit uh the automobiles and so forth there you see quite a variety of different fuels they have cars that you they go on propane and so forth uh the transportation system is just excellent uh they got last time i was there they had these trains that just kind of made a light hum as they ran through the tracks uh totally smooth so they were using some kind of uh electromagnetic driver for them. So you just heard a, a soft hum and they just kind of went by. No no loud noise or anything. So uh, in a lot of ways, a more modern country than we have here. Although, you know, we kind of think of ourselves as as being, you know, the most sophisticated modern country in the world. Uh, I, I'd say the Swiss have us beat. And it, they didn't did it without all the resources that we've had in this country. So uh, very impressive country. A lot of strange things about it, but <laughs> very impressive in a lot of ways, technology-wise. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, uh, what, what kind of vulnerabilities do you see in some of this this increasing technology uh, mentality? Where does it make us weak other than it takes jobs away? Well, okay. Two weaknesses to technology. One is that technology is very predictable. You know, you, you, if there's a, and I, I kind of pictured this, you know, you have trucks driving across country that are, are totally autonomous. They don't need a cab or anything like that. They could run themselves across the country. Uh, but you get an out of work truck driver who's a skilled driver in an old pickup truck. Can he cut ahead of that thing and slow down and just bring it to a halt, just either as harassment or intending, you know, as a way to rob it? And uh, you wouldn't do that in front of a person because that you don't know. That person might panic and actually slam into you or whatever. But, hey, would you do that in front of a computerized truck? 
maybe you might you might get pretty confident because the sensors you know are going to cause it to break. They're going to sense an object in front of it, cause it to stop. So so you got predictability. People are a little bit unpredictable, but automation isn't. So I could see those type of incidents happening quite a bit and more out in the boondocks where you have uh you know these little truck stop towns where basically the only reason the town exists is because the truck drivers just stop there for lunch on the way through. And you know, so there's not a lot of local law enforcement. And the local law enforcement may even want to look the other way. So I, I could see stuff like that happening at least for at some period of time and if the level didn't get too high it would be a constant almost cost of doing business type of thing. So that's one thought I have on that. So that's that's one vulnerability. I definitely uh, see kind of a hole there with, you know, if you do it in the right areas where there's less local enforcement, you've got something. But, I mean, most of these OTR trucks are interstate. That takes on the whole federal thing. And while a lot of people could get away with it, I think the problem for them would be in time they'd start getting plucked off. And it would be a – I think you'd end up in a pretty serious federal felony level for doing something like that. It might not make – uh the risk reward ratio quite what it would be to be selling meth on the corner. Yeah, uh, I could see that happening. Uh, yeah, I could see it being done just as an harassment. So you take up this, take out this old, you know, beat up pickup and you just put it in front of the truck and dump, park another one in back of it and leave it there and take off in another car. Yeah. Just to, just to hassle them. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I could also see. Hey, sometimes uh, they'll they'll pirate it. You know, uh, then it's it's how hard do you how hard do you enforce it? I mean, hey, you could arm the the autonomous trucks. <laughs> you know, where, where does the line draw, and how do people feel about that? Yeah, remember the uh, remember the episode of uh, MythBusters? The, I think it was like one of the last ones, or maybe it was the last one with the with the truck. Did you did you happen to see that? No, no. They, they I, I built didn't. this like giant everything mover, like a big, look like a, like a, like a, almost like a cow pusher on a train, but a big wedge shaped thing. And they drove this semi at like, I don't know, 60 miles an hour through this cascade of things, cars, trucks, mannequins, whatever. And it was, uh, it was, I think they, they went out with a bang for sure on that one. And I mean, you know, you could design a vehicle to be capable of doing that. I don't think people would tolerate that. Um, I, I, I think as people, as upset as people get over someone being shot by a cop, uh, someone being, you know, moved out of the way to the point of death by a giant truck, I, I, I don't think. And there's the, there's the laws of robotics not harm a human being or something like that. Doesn't that, well, doesn't that break that? I mean, obviously that law is not actually a law. It's a, it's a concept, but you know. <laughs> That's that's the thing. I mean, you know, geez, I, I you know, uh, the way our country works, sometimes you can say, hey, you know, the truck almost uh, is run by an independent corporation. So who's responsible now for the death of that person? You know, I, I could see a lot of elements, how it actually shakes out. Who knows? There, there's too many moving parts. Yeah. And we have a if we, you always look to history to see what the future holds. And in history. When there are major disruptions to jobs like this, people have a tendency to strike back. There were, you know, the first sawmills that, that, that had, you know, a saw blade turned by water, um, often were burned to the ground by the, 
the guy that used to stand in the pit with a with a two man saw and, and saw that board all day. And that, I mean, you can't think of a more miserable job if you really think about it than the bottom man in a saw pit, right? But it was still their jobs. Uh, the threshing machines were destroyed because it took the threshers' jobs away. So there is a a history of people rebelling with violence when jobs are disrupted by technology. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's how do ev- does everybody else feel about that? Are, are you more upset that your stuff from Amazon didn't come across the country in time? Or are you, do you side with the person who's losing their job? You know, it, it, I don't know. Right now, I think that the mood of the country is pretty selfish. Hey, as long as I have enough to eat and I have my stuff, I, I, I'm not going to be too upset about anything. <laughs> so I don't know how people would take it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I'm, I'm answering comments on Facebook right now about automation, just basically the same argument we started out with. Oh, they'll just make new jobs. You know, it's like the tractor replaced a lot of workers and it's, 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 it's funny. There's like this, I think there's a cognitive dissonance here, right? Where, where people don't want to accept this. It's, it's so disturbing that we'll just explain it away. Yeah. I think. People are not willing to uh, think. Don't want to even want to think about it un- unless until it happens. <laughs> then yeah. you know. Then then you're not prepared for it. Um, you know. I think the other way, and you've you mentioned, I think, on one of the podcasts, I think with Jessica Mills, maybe that you never saw the movie The Hunger Games. No, I haven't. I saw the, I saw one of them, but it wasn't okay. the first one. Uh, Actually, and I only saw it because I was on a plane. You know, yeah. they had the, you pick a movie and it was like the only thing that didn't look horrible. So I watched <laughs> it. I think it was the third one or second. I don't know. Um, okay. but I never saw the first one, which is the one that everybody was so, I saw Mocking Jay part something. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the Hunger Games, I think actually maybe comes into play some of the ideas of that about how you could eventually go to, uh, you know, just keep going higher and higher tech. But what, what happened in the Hunger Games, to give you a real brief, is basically it's the it's the future America. It's been the country's been split up into a capital and twelve districts. The twelve districts, the people are dirt poor, and basically slave away because, you know, when they're dirt poor and they have nothing, uh, human labor is, is cheaper than machine labor, and. The capital, they have high-tech everything. They live the life of luxury surrounded by anything you could want. And that's kind of, I think, the way if you just take the automation and continues to move the way it can move, and I I don't see anything technology-wise that's stopping it. That's not the limitation in computer technology. that's almost where you go, where basically you got a few percent of the population has everything they want. The rest of the population is dirt poor and subsistence survival. Uh, in this case, you know, in the Hunger Games, they managed to control it. And there's, it's, it's actually it, it, it's a t- story for the teenagers. And I've read the book because my kids are teens. Uh, and I was curious what they were interested in. Uh, really, I think a very clever, uh, political book. 
And the movie does a pretty good job of covering the book. It's a, it, the first movie, The Hunger Games itself, is is a good movie on a, on a lot of elements. So, I, it's one I'd recommend you. You know, if you get a chance, see it. But uh, worthwhile and kind of interesting in this thing where you know technology can go, but it, it benefits fewer and fewer people, which I think actually is kind of happening now in this country. Fewer and fewer people are benef- accruing the benefits of it. And more and more people are being left behind. They're going into a, a lower economic status. Yeah, I've, I've called it basically the 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 backward slide of the middle class, where people have been talking about the middle class for years, people falling out of the middle class, struggling to get into the middle class, what have you. And that's a, a problem, and it has been a problem. But what I see now is like the entire class structure sliding. So what we would think of as middle class is now lower middle class, and it just cascades down. And I think that technology can certainly cause that situation to be aggravated because if you if you have some if you, let's say you do have some relative stability, not everything's completely disrupted. People do have certain jobs that are still there. People do have some money, but there's just less jobs in each sector. Well, the person that controls the technology. Is is even maybe collecting less of their their money per user, but yet they're collecting from more users. So there's an incredible opportunity for like technocratic wealth there, and a, a major wealth disparagement. And that's why I say I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like at some point we're going to have to have a radical shift in economics and how the actual economic monetary system works. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. You know, things things will be changing, and and like I said, there's so many moving parts to this thing that to to try to make any kind of prediction, you're you're going to be wrong. You know, it's how wrong, and and you know, the many many possibilities, and all of them are viable at this point. You have to kind of keep an open mind to that. Uh, let's see, the other thing you asked about, the other vulnerability to technology, and it's just the complexity and the interconnectedness. Um, you know, one of the articles I pulled out uh, from the tech journals is about spoofing GPS. And apparently there was an incident with a U.S. ship going into uh, uh, foreign waters in one place. And what they believe happened was they spoofed the G- ship's GPS and uh, caused it to navigate incorrectly. So there's all of these things, they're tremendously complex, and not any one person truly understands the whole of it, but they all have vulnerabilities to them. Boy, there's so, an issue, right? So you get your hacker buddy, uh, if you're an out-of-work truck driver, you get your hacker buddy might be more effective than your uh, your your old pickup truck. It very well could be, you know, that would be the other thing. Hey, you, you, you spoof the GPS. If, if it's totally GPS based, now I, I think the technology is there that doesn't have to be, but a lot of times, you know, you try the easiest thing first. Well, the easiest thing would make it totally GPS based. Yeah. So yeah, that might be a vulnerability there. Yeah. I, I was reading something recently with, uh, with Ford. That might be why they're going more with a LIDAR based system. I mean, uh, and that was there was like a big conflict there between I can't remember the guy's name, the president of Ford Motor Company and Elon Musk. And Musk was saying LIDAR is like uh it's too expensive, it's not really the way to go. And the Ford president was pretty heavy on his stance that this is basically their technology to go forward with because that's that that's more like the machine has eyes. 
right? Mm-hmm. Then then a a computer talking to a satellite tells you know. And could you see the 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 pile up on you know I thirty if uh, there was a some sort of a cosmic disruption of the satellites for ten seconds, right? I mean, so there has to be some level of technology developed that is independent of that. Like GPS is part of that. But it has to have other checks on it, I, I would think. Yeah, and, and there's no reason with the computing power that we have and the amount of memory. I mean, what you can put on a flash card, you could put a map of all the roads in the United States. You know, it's it's amazing the uh, energy density and so forth that we have. So uh, I'm sorry, the memory density that we, we've been able to fit in these devices, the amount of uh, transistors on a little chip of silicon and so forth. So. All these things are capable of being independent, but you know if they if you try the easy way first, it, it, it's going to be more vulnerable. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, um, you actually have a, a site you mentioned that you blog on. You want to tell folks about that? Okay, it, it's it's really very minimal. Uh, I started it back in uh, June, so it's called Investing with Nature, and and I. Some of the things I've been talking about lately on the blog, and, and I just have a half dozen blog posts, I think. Uh, you know, it's just kind of a, as time of, is available. You know, some of the technology issues, uh, some of the things I've been doing is I've, I've kind of looking towards retirement and saying, you know, what I, what I really want to do as an active retirement is do something permaculture related. Uh, Listening to your show and, and when you've had Jeff on, uh, Jeff Lawton on, uh, some of the interviews with him, that got me really interested. And that's kind of the way I'd like to go is, you know, an active retirement, learning, learning more about that, uh, maybe teaching it to some extent, uh, trying to set an example, uh, for other people, uh, maybe even giving local talks, uh, about, you know, the benefits of investing, you know, I, originally I was thinking investing with permaculture, but then, you know, listen to you said, oh, don't use a word that somebody doesn't know. So, you know, investing with nature popped up. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a long-term thing, but you know, I'd love to get some more people uh, following it besides like my mother and my sister. So it would be nice. So with the Survival Podcast audience, if a few people want to drop by there, I'd be thrilled. Very, very cool. Well, I appreciate you being with us today, Bob. Oh, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know I've really gotten a lot out of your podcast over the years. Probably been listening for you know less thousand episodes or so, and and I really love what you do. I think uh, you're getting out a great message and doing a great service to people. So thank you. Well, again, thanks for being with us today, and uh, have a great evening. You too. Well, that was a, a fun interview, definitely. Glad to have uh, Bob on the show. As uh, we wrap up, let me remind you, first of all, if you want to help support the work we do here at the Survival Podcast, one way you can do that is by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, or MSB as we call it. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about it. But I'll tell you a little bit. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies that are providing things you're probably spending money on anyway. And if you use just a few of them a year, they'll put money back back in your pocket, you'll actually make a profit 
by supporting the show. How about a lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal valued at $49? How about a premium membership to Western Botanicals valued at $50? $99 right there. And you got like 65 more places to go for other programs that give you real value in return for your support of the show. If you look at it just in supporting the show, all I'd say is the show worth 20 cents an episode to you. If so, please consider joining the MSB because uh, that's how the numbers work out. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, all of you qualify for a discount. Just uh, send me an email at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with service discount, TSPC in the subject line, and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get back to you. Please do that before, not after you join. The other way you can uh, help support this show is by... Uh, Getting on over to tspaz.com. What, what the heck is tspaz? If you're a new listener, tspaz is where you can do your Amazon shopping through a link and support the Survival Podcast. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't really take you any more time. And you can find out about cool things on Amazon, though, with my daily Amazon reviews. Today, I have a product on tspaz that is, oh my, this is just fun. And I decided we needed something that was just flipping fun for a change. This is called the Bug Assault 2.0 Insect Eradication Gun. Kind of looks like a tool made by DeWalt with the black and yellow going on. But what this is, is basically like a really long pistol, like kind of sawed-off shotgun length. Uh, it's made out of plastic, and you pump it, and it automatically puts itself on safe, and you flip it off, and then you can shoot it. What does it shoot? It's the Bug Assault. It shoots salt. Like a little shotgun blast assault. Bam! Dead bug. It works about one to three feet, depending on how good you are with it and what environmental conditions you're dealing with. Is assault nice and dry, what have you? I will tell you this. The, this is a, a thing that's been around a while, and this is the 2.0 version. It is improved. I got one, and it's improved. Definitely. I first learned about this thing from Kelly Heron who's the guy that did all the video work for the PDC at Permethos. He had one up at Permethos. It worked pretty good, but it had some flaws and things. So if you've heard, well, they don't really work that great at all, they made it better. It, it's, uh, it hits a little harder. uses a little less salt per shot. And who wouldn't have fun killing flies? Is it practical? Not really. I mean, you know, do you really need something like this for 50 bucks? No. No. But... There are times when it's useful, like when the fly's up in the corner of a window and you can't get the fly swatter in there, and if you try to go in and get them, he gets away. Well, bam, dead fly, right? Or, you know, that one fly that just annoys the hell out of you. You know what fly I'm talking about, the taunting fly in your ear, and it lands somewhere, and as soon as you move toward it, it flies away, and it does it for days until it finally dies. It's fly death from, like, being an old fly, which is, like, I don't know, a week old. You know that fly? Well, you know, you put a little bait out for him because baiting's legal with flies. It's not like some states, you know, if you put a deer feeder out there and shoot a deer on her, you can, you can get in trouble with the rabbit sheriff, right? But they don't care about a little, little piece of buttered toast or something out there on the counter and the fly comes in and lands on it and you hide behind the refrigerator, jump out like Elmer Fudd, but the fly can't turn the gun around backwards and blow your face off like Bugs Bunny used to before the politically correct nonsense idiots kicked him off TV doing that, and bam, dead fly. And when you're done with it, you get some lightly salted flies to your chickens. Check it out today, the Bug Assault, and it is Bug-A-Salt 2.0. Insect eradication gun. And yes, it's just a silly thing, but it's a fun, silly thing. 
And you know what? You can turn your kids loose with this thing. Unless they shoot each other right in the eye from a couple feet away, you ain't going to hurt nobody with it. At about four feet, that salt's kind of lost all of its real authority. It really has. It certainly isn't going to shoot across a room and do any damage. And it's a small amount, and salt's easy to clean up. And you know, So it's not like giving them a BB gun to shoot flies with. It's pretty cool. And again, it automatically puts the safe on every time you cock it. And Boy, you want to talk about something cheap ammo. So get your hunting on with the Bug Assault gun. Anyway, with that... I also want to remind you about the TSP Business Directory. You can just go to tspbiz.com. You'll find companies that are right here in the TSP community that are wanting to do business with you, and we should keep business in the family whenever we can. Today's supporting member of the Business Directory is MyDIY Solar House. They provide engineering consulting and solar installations for homeowners. Go to MyDIYSolarHouse.com to learn more. With that, let's get to the uh, closing song today. This one is, uh, you know, I, I watched the debates. I watched the debates um, on Monday. I, I probably should have done something else with that 90 minutes of my time. But given my station in life as a podcaster that does have to sometimes talk about politics, um, I, I felt obligated to watch it. I, I don't know that it helped at all. Um, I don't know that I can help. I could do anything better for you guys. All I know is it, it looked pathetic to me. Um, Hillary Clinton did not get nailed with the things that she should have been nailed with by the moderator. She she got softballs. But her responses were giant softballs for Trump. I, I, I couldn't I, – I, I still – part of me just feels like the guy doesn't really want to be president, that this is all a gimmick because – there was, I'll give you a couple examples. This is what bothers me with the Ask Clown Circus. I could stand on that debate stage with either of these idiots and slice them to pieces. So there's a, a question comes up about cybersecurity and, you know, the threats of hacking and stuff like that. And Trump mumbles and bumbles and fumbles through the whole thing. It doesn't give any real answer. Hillary blathers on about how important it is. Doesn't really give an answer either, though it was more coherent than Trump because I'm sure it was memorized. She spent like three weeks preparing for this. And, uh, you know, uh, all I could think is if I were Trump, I would have said, hold on, hold on a second before we move on. I'd like to know, and I think the American people would like to know, how you can be trusted with cybersecurity for our entire nation when you weren't capable of being trusted with your own email accounts. Because in the words of FBI Director James Comey, what you set up for your security, you would have been better off using Gmail. And I just don't think it makes any sense that this country would, would, would trust you with the security of the nation itself when you weren't capable of providing security for yourself. But see, he didn't say that. It's, just, it's, it's sad. And I could keep going. I could keep going because there was almost every single question that was asked. I felt like if I stood on the stage with either one of those people, I would have sliced them to bits. You know why? I got clowns and jokers. That's right. That's the song of the day today. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, and I'm stuck in the middle with you. That's where we are, guys, as a community, as a TSP community, as a community of free thinkers, a community of people that are made up mostly of anarchists and libertarians and libertarian-leaning Republicans and libertarian-leaning Democrats. I mean, I think we kind of have the whole gamut of the political spectrum here, but in the end, if you stick around here, you probably got a lot of libertarian, or you'd leave. You wouldn't stick around for very long. 
Because it would be like listening to nails on a chalkboard every day if you didn't have some of that in you. And, but some of some of us still believe in that dichotomy. Some of us are still going to vote for catharsis and vote for catharsis. I mean, look at this, that. Catharsis means it's an action that makes you feel good but doesn't really do anything. And that's what your vote has become. It's a cathartic act. It makes you feel like you have control, but you don't. You're stuck in the middle with us. Catharsis is when your mommy was mean to you when you were a kid and you never told her how mean she was. And now you have a better relationship, but you still harbor resentment at your mommy. So you, you sit down and you write a great big long letter bitching about all the shit they did wrong when you were a kid. And then you fold it up and put it in an envelope like you're going to mail it, but you burn it. You don't send it. And that releases that feeling. Like you feel like you were, you were allowed to vent. That's, that's what your vote is. Well, in the end, we're still stuck. And no matter who wins this, we're going to be stuck with a terrible president for the next four years. I'm seeing a trend. I'm seeing a trend and I don't like it. It, it, it really disturbs me as to what the Ass Clown Circus of 2016 or 2024 will be like. I, I think it, I have felt like, at least since Ronald Reagan, every president was bad enough to make you actually feel like the guy before him would have been better. Think about it. We go from Reagan to Bush Sr. Huh? To Bill Clinton. Ugh. To George W. Bush Jr. Real. Ugh. Wow. You know, and then Barack Obama. And I'll tell you what. As bad as Barack Obama is, wait till about June of 2016. And I bet you, if you're sitting there looking at Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, you're going to think, man, Obama wasn't that bad. It's a disturbing trend, and we're stuck in the middle. But all we can do is keep butts in our ass for the opportunities we do have in our own lives and focus on the things we actually control. Because what, what, what the oligarchs and the technocrats do, we don't control. We control our own lives, our own destinies. We need to build our own simple solutions, our own complex solutions for ourselves. All this automation we're talking about is a tremendous opportunity if we can get a piece of it for ourselves and incorporate it into our daily lives. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
some sense 